This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Azarine Vanderfleet Alumi, author of the novel Savage Tongues. We might like to think from our moral high horse in the United States that, you know, acts of savage violence only occur in the Middle East or elsewhere, right? But we've seen and know our own history and how it's playing out on the American landscape to this day. We'll be back with Azarine Vandervliet Alumi in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show.
My guest today is Azarine Vandervliet Alumi, author of three novels, Fra Keeler, Call Me Zebra, and Savage Tongues. She is the recipient of the 2019 Penn Faulkner Prize, a 2015 Whiting Award in Fiction, and a National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 honoree. Her work has appeared in the Paris Review, Granta, Baum, and the Los Angeles Review of Books, among other publications. Vandervliet Olumi's new novel, Savage Tongues, tells the story of Arazu, an Iranian-American 17-year-old who goes to Spain to visit her estranged father, only to find he is not there, and instead he has sent a weekly allowance to her via his stepnephew, Omar, who is 42 years old. Omar slowly, with great calculation, abuses and sexually violates Arazu the entire summer. Two decades later, when she inherits her father's apartment, she returns with her best friend Ellie to excavate the place of her abuse and her memories about it. Ellie, an Israeli-American scholar dedicated to the Palestinian cause, has a history of being abused as well. The two women navigate the current moment and its inseparability with the past. Savage Tongues is told in first person from Arazu's point of view and explores issues of power, displacement, geopolitical history, agency, abuse, and memory. We began the discussion with Azarine Vandervliet Alumi reading a poem she had recently posted on her Instagram account. A palm tree I beheld in Al-Rusafa, far in the west, far from the palm tree land. I said, you, like myself, are far away in a strange land. How long have I been far away from my people? You grew up in a land where you are a stranger and like myself are living in the farthest corner of the earth. May the morning clouds refresh you at this distance and may abundant rains comfort you forever. So it's a poem by Al-Rahman who um, was actually, he was in exile from Um, Syria from Damascus because there was a lot of massacres and conflicts um, there and he was and it had a lot to do with with Islamic history so he leaves he's one of the only people who survives and he goes on foot all the way through North Africa because his his mother if I recall correctly was Berber so he had ties to Berber tribes in North Africa and when he arrives it's at a time when the southern part of Spain, the Iberian Peninsula, is, is sort of in a moment of, of collapse or decay. Um, and I think there's Visigoth presence there and, and a lot of other kinds of um, people were, were living there. So it was quite culturally hybrid space. But somehow they encourage him to go and claim, claim his position as, as, as a prince and so he establishes um, the city of Cordoba as the capital of Andalusia. And then um, over time, he begins to sort of use the, the ruins that were there, the Roman and the Visigoth ruins, um, to rebuild this, the city uh, with echoes of, of what the architecture and the landscape looked like in, back in Damascus in Syria. And he brings trees and plants palm trees everywhere in his summer garden. And this poem, I think, really captures 
the, just the the kinds of ways in which exile is very spatial, like our experiences of loss um, are so rooted to our sense of place and geography. And when we are displaced, we have this kind of almost physical yearning or pain for the sights and sounds and smells of where we used to come from. Um, and so I just thought it was, it was just a beautiful, tender hearted poem of sitting next to a palm tree and speaking to it. And, and very obviously he feels heard by the palm tree, right? Like it's a discourse, which I think is also part of the Islamic tradition is, is speaking to the trees uh, or speaking to the birds and hearing them speaking back. Um, so, so, you know, it's not just humans who have agency, right? Um, the landscape does, nature does, so on and so forth. So yeah, happy to start with that poem. Did you find this before you wrote Savage Tongues and did it influence you? Yes, for sure. I did a lot of historical research while I was writing the novel. Um, so the, the research and the, the writing process are completely intertwined. So I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your how you grew up. Because you're talking about those feelings of displacement. And I wondered how you got sort of your sensibility of the world and what led you to being the Azarine you are today. <laughs> well, you know, I grew up moving around a lot and always being an outsider everywhere that I lived. Um, I grew up, you know... Um, in the Middle East, I and and I say the word Middle East with a lot of <laughs> distance, um, since it's kind of a Western construct of that geographic space and area. Um, but to be more specific, I grew up in the Emirates, and I lived in Iran, in Tehran, and in Mazandaran, which is in the north in the Caspian, and um, later moved to Spain in Valencia, in particular, which is on the coast, and. Uh, came back and forth to the United States. So I, you know, I have this very strange relationship to America where I am a citizen. I was born here and I feel very American. And at the same time, I feel very much an immigrant because I left immediately and really didn't return and, and settle here with my family until I was uh, 14 or 15. Um, it was, I think it was eighth grade. So I must have been 14. But we left again after that and came back again. And, you know, it was a constant sense of, of turbulence and displacement for political reasons, for personal family reasons. You know, that sensibility of being a migrant, of having a peripatetic life, of, of being displaced or always longing for, for a different space is, is what informs a lot of my practice as a writer. And so in, in your novel, Savage Tongues, Arazu is a young Iranian-American teenager. She's 17 when she goes to Marbella, Spain. And she goes after her father has basically left the family. He has married and moved to Spain, and he's, he's a little bit itinerant as well. And she has a new stepmother who has quite a bit of money. And in her family with her mom and her brother, she moved to Reno and her brother was beat up by a skinhead for being Middle Eastern, for being different. And that was that trauma already of the displacement and her brother 
led her to go to Spain to visit her father. But when he gets there, he, he's not there. The father isn't there. And his, her stepmother's nephew turns up, Omar, and he's 42 years old. And he slowly, methodically, and systematically rapes her and dominates her for the summer. And she, you know, she is a complete victim and also thinks somehow that she wants it in some level or she wants him or that he loves her or that it's some form of love. And then your your main story is her going back two decades later with her best friend, Ellie, who's an Israeli-American scholar devoted to the Palestinian cause and, and peace. So she's reliving this and, and trying to make sense of it as her adult self. And it's a very haunted novel. So I just wanted to ask you a little bit about how you got into this space, how you discovered Arazu, and if that is a mischaracterization of the plot, please tell me. <laughs> um, I don't think it's a mischaracterization of, of the plot. I think that everybody is going to register Arazu's conclusions and ways of perceiving what happened subjectively. Um, because, you know, when we're talking about sexual violence, it's a very heightened space that we all enter. And, you know, what I'm interested in is how we hold our understandings of sexual violence in our imaginations as women and how we talk about it with one another in private. So the novel is really about the aftermath of the sexual violence, about how it stays in her body and how it uh, shifts and influences the way that she relates to uh, loved ones or lovers or best friends or parents. Um, it completely transforms her, ident her, her identity in a lot of ways, in ways that are really annihilating and ways that are generative as well. Um, she never wishes that things had been different. There's a deep wisdom to Arzu's character where she's working towards a complete acceptance of what is rather than trying to claim what should have been or what could have been. I, yeah, I'm, I'm really interested personally in the ways that, you know, the logic of empire, colonialism, power dynamics that are political influence our desire and the way that we uh, crave sex or crave one another or don't or reject one another, right? And I think that the friendship between Ellie and Arazu creates a space to talk about politics and desire and how the two are, are really interlinked and how the politics of Arazu's body and her experiences in the United States as well as in, in, in Iran and, and in the Middle East in general influenced her perception of Omar, right? And it's a perception that's continually unfolding. There's really no conclusion that she can arrive to. Uh, so I think that's, that's for me, the heartbeat of the novel is the, is the forever sitting with those kinds of experiences. The tone of the novel feels very haunting. You know, you can be ambiguous and she can have those levels of her that, as you said, like she doesn't wish that it didn't happen. She's just trying to make sense of it all. And because of the the annihilation exists alongside the generation and that life is so much of a paradox and the ambiguity. But is that sense of a haunting, does that word resonate with you? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I One of the 
writers, I, I mean, a couple of the writers that I most love are working in, in the kind of vein of the feminine Gothic or the speculative. Um, so Toni Morrison is, is a writer who's really important to me because of the way that she interweaves lyricism with dramatic event. Um, and there's always, history is always a phantasmagoric presence in her novels. Um, and I, I'm also really fond of Shirley Jackson, particularly The Haunting of Hill House was important to me as I was writing Savage Tongues and thinking about, to come back to our earlier point about the spatiality of desire and exile, right? That um, the apartment that she returns to is really haunted and has its own agency because it's an extension of Omar's body, right? It's an extension of their interactions and their intimacy. And so layered over the surfaces of that apartment is all of the trauma. So I think that the novel, because it's historical and deeply intimate, it's personal and political, it's definitely haunted in a lot of ways, for sure. I think, too, their bodies are also stand-ins for, for countries. Yeah, yeah. And I think that there's a wider network of friendships in the novel, though the primary characters are obviously Arazu and, and Ali. And, um, you know, they're you know, they're pretty sexually fluid characters. They're looking at the question of the Palestinian struggle and looking at the ways in which the relationships between Iran and the United States and the relationship between Israel and the United States and the general Arab world to Palestine is so complicated, you know, and it's, there's so many master narratives operating and they're trying to figure out what is the truth, you know, what is it that's happening and uh, how are these asymmetrical power struggles then reframed as conflicts, right? Like the language of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is, is quite problematic because we're not acknowledging the asymmetry of power there, the erasure and the annihilation of the occupation. And when we're talking about sexual violence, we have come to terms as a society over the last few years in particular with how important it is to make sure that we understand that if there is an asymmetry of power, we can't talk about sexual violence in terms of the, the woman having had a divided will um, or things being murky, right? We have to believe and acknowledge that struggle. And the language of that history that is so intimate is operating in parallel with these two girls, these two women trying to find language for what it means to, to come from a space that is full of violence and geopolitical conflict. So you're talking about these big ideas, really like global thoughts on, on these topics like violence and, and political structures and personal structures and, and, and racism. How do you take all these very heady things and then start to embody it in a character? How do you make it into a novel? I mean, this is a very close first person. You are so deep in her head. So it's, it is more of a meditative novel but I'm just curious about that process for you. Gosh, I don't know. Um, I didn't think there were there was any other way to write this novel and really capture the experience of the trauma. It might be helpful to talk about a different kind of writer 
whose work I really um, value, you know, Rachel Cusk's trilogy, where you are in a female-centered point of view throughout the trilogy, but we really understand her character through everything that she overhears or is or is told, right? All of the the speech that surrounds her identity and her consciousness allows us to maybe get a glimpse of who she is. Um, not Rachel Cusp, but the narrator, right? Who runs through all these um, books of hers. And I was just thinking about how brilliant that is, that narrative strategy. But I was also trying to to flip it on its head in a sense and write a novel where the Russian nesting doll is inward, right? Um, so, so in her trilogy, we kind of move outward and into these wider ripples across space and time. And I think the ripples are running the other direction in Savage Tongues where you have this, this I, this narrator who is a kind of vortex that everything kind of distorts into into her perception um, because inside of her body there is Omar and there is Ellie and um, there's Israel and Palestine and Iran. All of these things are are living inside her body. Another important thing is, is that I think of this as a very queer sensibility, right? It's a novel of disorientation or reorientation. Um, and I was also kind of trying to find what that sensibility might look like on the page. Did that take some rounds of, of trying that? Like, I'm assuming this, you always had this in first person point of view, but maybe you started a draft in a different form. I'm not sure. No, it was always in the first person. And I think it's a, it's a book that I, it wasn't difficult to write once I decided to write it. And it did appear to me in its skeletal form very quickly. And I then spent a lot of time kind of putting the flesh on the bones. I think it, the process of deciding to write the novel was really taxing. Uh, once I kind of committed to it, I don't know, it, it was just there waiting. When you say the process is taxing, was it because of, of the research and how much pain you were also looking into, like as a, as a people and as a, as a world? Well, it's a novel of grief, you know, um, and I don't think that writing about sexual violence and the ways in which sexual violence is connected in certain spaces to geopolitical conflict is an easy space to enter into, especially for female writers, you know, and I'm not just writing about sexual violence, right? I'm writing about the ways in which uh, war is, or geopolitical conflict, war, violence, that kind of violence is very much part of our ideas of how we perpetuate and defend nationhood. And our ideas of nationhood and our imaginary constructs of nationhood are very masculine and patriarchal. It's no accident then that, you know, even at our border or any other space of conflict and chaos, uh, rape happens as a war crime with increasing frequency because it's an extension of that kind of patriarchal mode of um, domination, right, and occupation. So it's a complicated 
way to present sexual violence and the way that history gets embedded into feminine bodies. So, you know, it, I had to do a lot of preparation emotionally, but also intellectually in order to get there. You said you wanted to explore this this concept of of female violence and violence on females. And I'm wondering if that exploration for you while you wrote that led to any discoveries for you, either about writing or how you think. Like, did your thinking evolve in any sort of way? Sure. Um, you know, it's the process was really about finding language for experiences that exist beyond language um, or grief that pushes us into the unspeakable, robs us of our voice. And the process of actually finding the language is really central to the novel because the narrator is a writer. And I think that engaging in that process of trying to articulate a pain or a grief that is so great and so annihilating and complex and trying to archive it is is a way of finding one's way back back to reality from horror right um you always drag drag you know that horror back into your reality with you you don't leave it behind but um i think it's a process of of metabolizing and integrating a, a grief um, that that is tremendous, right, um, in scale. So I think that was, you know, I, I really do believe that language has its own consciousness and is organic and alive. And I'm in conversation with language ra- rather than mastering language as a writer. That's more more of an accurate description of my relationship to it. And I think that writing the novel just validated that for me because I can see how capacious language is and how much it can hold. And I think that um, that in itself is a really beautiful, optimistic thing, right? The level of, of grace that language offers us and, and healing. Yeah, I felt like on a lot of levels, the novel was about language and like the meticulousness of of trying to find the words maybe for words that might not even exist and how long that might take and how language can never be the thing itself i i just think like on page 97 she's she's thinking and and she's saying i think at this point she is just entering the space in spain again that she inhabited 20 years earlier and she says I considered my options again or perhaps to be more accurate my expectations of language via v life's most indigestible experiences I worried that my attempts to document in words an experience that had always been for me inexpressible might be entirely futile I worried that I would run out of language before I could get to my teenage self to resuscitate her yeah, I mean, it's a retroactive language that she's searching for, right? She's, it's really, I think, on its most cellular level, a novel about a woman who returns to, to, to rediscover the teenager that she was. And language is the connective tissue that allows her to access herself 20 years prior, right? To go back to that teenager and all we have is language, right? For 
for recovering the past. And she does definitely struggle with it being futile or an arbitrary exercise. And that is part of the process, right? That's part of the challenge is those things come up and then she carries on nonetheless. She's not going to stop the search. I mean, it's an investigation. It's kind of like a detective novel in that sense, I suppose. Because, you know, words are so important. I'm wondering about your your experience of, of discovering what the title was. Because the title is, is standing, you know, that's the first thing people will see. It kind of stands for what the book is. Was that a difficult process for you to identify the title? And can you talk about what it means to you? Um, the novel was called Arezu for a long time as I was writing it. And I think at some point in conversation with my editor and, and my agent, um, we thought, well, how can the title add to our understanding of the novel rather than just be named after the narrator? And that made sense to me. And it wasn't long after that that Savage Tongues just kind of came to me as, as the title. I think that it can mean so many things depending on which dimension of the novel we're talking about, the linguistic aspect of it or the cruelty and, and the violence that exists, um, but also the ability to, to speak the unspeakable, right? To speak back to and through acts of violence that are horrifying, um, barbaric, right? And how those are universal acts of violence, right? They don't belong to a specific geographical zone. We might like to think um, from our moral high horse in the United States that, you know, acts of savage violence only occur in the Middle East or elsewhere, right? But we've seen and know our own history and how it's playing out on the American landscape to this day. So that's why it's plural, you know, it's savage, savage tongues, um, because it's kind of speaking to all those different parts. One of the things that struck me about this novel was that it was not graphic with the body. Like it didn't have a, 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 a somatic graphicness. I mean, she was raped, which, which happens to the body, but it's very like emotionally graphic. We got so deep into her head. I mean, it makes sense to the character, right? Because her experience of of rape is a quiet, subtle, incremental one, right? She's groomed over time. Her trust is acquired first. And I think that that's the very particular experience of, of sexual violence. And I think when it comes to sexual violence, we have to speak about it in particulars. It's extremely important. And in this case, she exits her body in that moment and all that remains is the emotional register or the psychic register. That's part of the difficulty is of recovering a somatic experience, like returning to that moment and trying to remember. And she does say over and over again, there's a black box or a black hole where the experience of the rape is. And that lack of the physicality, I think is very physical also, right? That is one dimension of our physical experience is when we dissociate or, or exit our bodies, that negative space is so charged. And I think the places that, that trauma lives, like, you know, she chose to go back to this place where the trauma was perpetrated, which takes so much 
bravery and and it really was a quest for understanding and and I think on some some level if not healing that at least a reconciliation like to understand how you live with these two parts of it but you also had very physical things for her like she had a a bathing suit back then and a yellow shirt back then that were still there in the apartment 20 minutes later that or 20 hours later 20 20 years later that brought her back like so physically like so viscerally to that moment I think those moments of of her finding the clothes that she wore back then those were really actually wonderful to learn to write (laughs) I don't know that the again the idea that an object can can hold so much history and so much of our subjectivity and the traces of who we are get imprinted on the objects of our lives, on the clothes that we wear. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's really great about Arazu and Ali is that they are incredibly courageous female characters. They are not going to look away, no matter how horrific something is. And I think that's part of what makes their commitment to to truth-finding, you know, about the Palestinian struggle and about what it means to be Iranian-American, right? Um, that they're trying to present and access takes a lot of bravery, right? That they're not going to wince and look away. They're just going to keep staring at something until it relents and yields information. And of course, we're in a novel, we're in a fictional world. So, you know, those objects, a bathing suit, right? An answering machine, that that's the gift of, of literature, right? Is actually being transported to another physical space that you as the reader can can inhabit and you can be looking at the same bathing suit that the narrator is looking at. I think that kind of viscerality of experience is one of the greatest pleasures of writing for me, is how concrete can I make this object, but also all of the atmosphere and context that this object is attached to. I'm really invested in, in capturing all that on the page, um, even if it's laborious at times. Arzu and Ellie have this really amazing bond. They they met in, in college in Amherst. They, you know, seemingly come from very opposite places in the world, at least you would think emotionally. And, and Ellie has had her own trauma. She has also um, gone through rapes and, and sexual violence. And, you know, her parents were Israeli settlers and she didn't agree with them. And they found each other and they just found this camaraderie. But you were also saying earlier about sort of the fluidity um, and queerness embedded in in some of their discussions or their their bond. Yeah, I think their friendship is so incredible. And it's such an enduring female friendship that it allows them to process their grief and their sense of outsiderness together. And it's it's not just the two of them, but part of their small kind of, I'd say, tribe of friends is, you know, a Palestinian character, uh, Sahar, who is also uh, queer and living in the United States um, after having grown up in the West Bank. and. And the severe disorientation of of the trauma that comes up for her once she's in a supposedly safe space, right? Or a space where on the surface, 
everything appears really controlled. There's also um, another character who is American and who transitions throughout the process of this decades-long friendship. Ellie and Arzu are the closest, right? Um, They're the ones who are bonded on a molecular level. And I think it's part of their understanding of each other's queerness and each other's sensibility that allows them to actually go on these recovery journeys with one another. There is something about being disoriented, about being asked to face away from where you come from or being forced to face away from where you come from that always opens up, I think, the gift of queerness. And if we're thinking about it as being a slant or diverging from, for, for Ellie, she is disowned um, from her family of Israeli settlers because she does not feel she belongs to that world or has a right to that landscape. And the ways in which her queerness operates within an Orthodox Jewish landscape while being American and Palestinian oriented, you can't separate those from each other. It's all about questions of ownership, right? Who owns who and how do we make claim to each other's bodies and try to police each other's bodies, right? About whether it's because of queerness or, you know, where we're allowed to physically put our feet on, on earth. They're always working through the questions of ownership um, and surveillance together as friends. Do you have friends like that in your life? Yes, I do. I'm very lucky. Did that influence anything that you wrote? Absolutely. I mean, in I think that in some ways, this book is a love letter to my queer family. It's dedicated to my queer family. Do you think that because you moved around so much in your life, that there might be an element when you find your tribe like that later, that brings you closer than maybe if you had just grown up in LA your whole life? I mean, it's hard to say, but. Yeah, those are the impossible questions that we can't help asking ourselves. I think that our experience becomes more charged when we're moving around because we have to work harder to become grounded. And when all you have as a home port is your own body, you become extremely aware, right, of embodiment. And I think that that takes tremendous effort, right? That you don't get to be oblivious about what your body does to others or what others have done to your body. And it takes so long to find safety, um, physical safety anywhere, because you don't have your back covered, you don't have your shoulder covered. So I do think that our friendships can be more charged and can have this kind of temporal dimension that feels immense, right? Because these two friends through one another get to recover their entire childhoods. And not just that, they're also reaching back into their family histories as, as Muslims and Jews and trying to figure out how was their friendship set up to be forbidden, right? Um, these kinds of transnational friendships you know, we, we have to come to terms with how who we are allowed to love is a major factor in perpetuating violence 
you know, this isn't a world where Israelis and Iranians are set up to love each other. We're set up to hate each other. We're set up, Muslims and Jews are set up to hate each other. And the novel is, is really flying in the face of that and saying no, that, that, that love is exactly what we need. I think too that their friendship is one, and I think you know sometimes when you found your your people when they can sit with your ambiguity because this it, everything about this is is an ambiguity. There's so many paradoxes. There's so many things that would seem to be in conflict. Not just the fact that they're friends, but that at some points, you know, Ellie's there to support Arizu, but Arizu can't let her. And, and there's times when she can let her in. And I think some people just really want to know with certainty what how things are going to turn out. And it, if you're living in a space of ambiguity, you can't really hang with someone like that. Yeah, that's totally true. <laughs> yes. I mean, I have to say I, that comes back to the queer sensibility for me. I think you're you're putting your finger on something super important, which is that queerness is for me, right? Again, these are important to be specific, is about allowing for ambiguity and contradiction and complexity and fluidity. And none of those things appeal to a straight, a, a straight perspective, right? Or a straight male perspective or a straight white male perspective, right? However we want to put it. And I don't want to reduce it to that because again, nuance is important there too, but they never ask each other as friends to settle on a point of view because that's antithetical to how they were raised in the world. How can you settle on a point of view when you've lived in Christian and Muslim and Jewish spaces when you've lived in so-called Western and so-called Eastern spaces, which those terms as well are complete constructs, right? Um, Spaces that have moral codes that contradict one another. How do you make sense of that? And how do you just allow parts of your identity to operate within one moral code while other parts of your identity are free to operate in another moral code. And I think that they get that about each other. And they're both deeply spiritual characters, right? They're, they, they both grew up in deeply Islamic and Sephardic or Jewish and Muslim tradition and ritual. And so their friendship is full of ritual and magic and beauty in that sense but they're never asking one another to to be conclusive about anything. They're more interested in what it means to become rather than what it is to be, right? It's that ongoing, unfolding story of the self that they're chasing. Arazu recognizes that Omar, he, he's from Lebanon. She doesn't know what happened with between him and his father, why he left the country, and what kind of violence happened to him. So I think she has like some compassion for for that in him and and the way that it's getting transferred to her. It, it doesn't mean it's okay. I think it's just part of her reach for understanding. So I just wondered if you wanted to share anything about Omar. Yeah, I don't think she excuses what he's done 
at any point. She is trying to understand what the originating motive was. And I think that as women, we aren't, we aren't really allowed to go there, right? That's, we have to perform a certain discourse of survivorship when it comes to sexual violence that can sometimes forbid the possibility of trying to understand the context, the larger context of that violence and the violence that existed in the perpetrator's body that they were so compelled to unleash onto somebody else. Um, we confuse trying to grasp and understand with excusing. And there's so much anxiety about not excusing and making sure that we're saying that we're not excusing it, that we don't get a chance to talk about that wider lens. She's really trying to understand what happened to Omar. And all of these characters, they're living in Spain, which is a historically Muslim and, and Jewish space and Christian space. And they're trying to understand how now from the history of Iran, Lebanon, Palestine, and Israel are completely interlinked, right? You know, the civil war in Lebanon that Omar is raised through is tied in with the Israeli domination of the Palestinian you know, peoples and, and land um, and the refugee crisis and Iran's influence in the region is also informing all of those dimensions of power. So the characters are set up to interact from a historical position and a historical positionality, right? So they're bringing all of that charged stuff to the table when they're interacting. And there's no way for Arza to fully grasp what happened without also asking those questions about Omar. How did the civil war destroy him? How did his father's disappearance destroy him? How did having to step up and become the man, so to speak, in this position of vulnerability where his community was falling apart, uh, make him want to self-destruct or destroy others? So those are the questions she's asking. I also want to say that Arazu has love in her life. It's, it's not that she is there. She has so much support and love from her husband. Yeah. I mean, I think the entire journey is predicated on love in a way that it's impossible to, to go down that well of grief if there aren't people tethered to you and holding you while you descend. And Shavi does that for her. And... He doesn't at first maybe in the novel understand her curiosity, right? He's, he wants her to just at first be like, this, is, this man is terrible and your healing means that you accept that he was terrible and he did an unspeakable, unthinkable thing. And she wants to go farther, right? And he has to work on his own internalized understandings of what good and proper masculinity is, right? Um, allowing her or witnessing her journey of understanding what actually happened and the complexities of Omar's character requires healing as well for Shavi. And so everybody has to do the work in order for her to do the work. And I think that's, I think there's a line in the book 
about how violence is a collective act and therefore grieving and healing has to also be a collective act, right? That it's communal. And of course the love that Ellie and her have is, is an unconditional love. Um, and, and the other, the other characters I mentioned, Sahar and Sam, they're all important. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your, what you do at Notre Dame. I was reading about it. It's so, it sounds really interesting. About the series that I started there, Literatures of Annihilation, Exile, and Resistance. You know, part of writing this novel was understanding how we can capture elements or experiences of state-sanctioned violence and how our political and personal wounds are so intimately tied up with one another. And I realized that there's really not a lot of conversation happening specifically around these issues and also not a lot of visibility given to writers of Middle Eastern and North African descent in the United States because we are operating under a kind of censorship of what the general public is allowed to learn about our experiences and about what's happening to our families and our countries on a microscopic level, right? The, the media cannot possibly capture the human element and the human experience on the ground, nor does it often capture the actual experiences, political experiences accurately. Um, so I wanted to create a space where uh, writers could come together, writers who are Middle Eastern and North African, but writers who are um, Latin American, who are American writers of color, for us to actually speak about how we can link systems of domination to one another and talk about how our understanding of literature and its capaciousness changes in the process of engaging and responding to state-sanctioned violence. And it's, it's been wonderful. Um, yeah, so we do uh, one talk each month and the conversations are, I think, curated, you know, with a lot of thought and care. And um, people can, can sign up on our listserv to, to join the conversations. So there's a website under Literatures of Annihilation, Exile, and Resistance. Can you please share a passage from an author that influenced you as a writer? Yeah, I will read a passage from James Baldwin's Giovanni's Room, which was so important to me while I was writing Savage Tongues. I stand at the window of this great house in the south of France as night falls, the night which is leading me to the most terrible morning of my life. I have a drink in my hand. There's a bottle at my elbow. I watch my reflection in the darkening gleam of the window pane. My reflection is tall, perhaps rather like an arrow. My blonde hair gleams. My face is like a face you have seen many times. My ancestors conquered a continent, pushing across death-laden plains until they came to an ocean which faced away from Europe into a darker past. That's the opening paragraph of Giovanni's Room. And how did it influence you? Oh gosh, that novel is so brilliant. I mean, it's full of this electric charge and this, this kind of vertiginous energy. And it's 
again, I think a novel of, of, of queer sensibility and a novel about queerness and self-censorship and desire and violence and looking for safety um, and not being able to find it. So highly recommend it. Can you read a passage from something you wrote that maybe was hard or tricky to write? I think that chapter four in Savage Tongues, which is when Ali and Arzu finally are approaching the building where um, everything happened to Arzu as a teenager was really hard to write because I was trying to capture the, the gorgeousness of the landscape and the terrible darkness that looms over the apartment. It was still early in the season After lying empty and exposed the tides of winter, the streets were renewed by the arrival of foreign tourists, Arab sheikhs, Spaniards who kept summer apartments by the sea. The local shopkeepers had stocked and decorated their shelves, thrown their polished windows open to let in the warm air, which trembled with the prospect of money. The early summer light was brilliant, luminous, incandescent. The palms and aloes with their green arching leaves thick with water, the white stucco walls of the homes set squarely against one another, the thick papery bougainvillea that crawled across the city's surfaces like mouths painted rouge, like kisses turned toward the vivid blue of the sky. All of it screamed yes to life. And why did you choose that? Yeah, just as I was saying, I think the contrast or the paradox, the contradiction between the gorgeous lushness of the landscape and the greenery and just the layers of history and the architecture of the space, right? You see the Arab walls, there's Visigoth ruins, there's, you know, um, Catholic churches, all of that exists side by side. And then, you know, a second later after the end of that sentence, she's looking up at the building and it's immersed in darkness. And I'm really interested in capturing all those contradictions on the page and and the beauty and the horror of, of the landscape. Where do you write? Gosh, I think mainly I write at my desk, but I confess I'm, I often write in bed. <laughs> What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? What do I do? I think I, the the farthest away from writing that I've ever been is when I'm riding horses. So, um, yeah, when I'm just in the arena or out in a field with the horse, I, they require a thousand percent presence of mind. And, and I think that's, that's where I go these days. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? It depends. Often I show my work first to my husband, who, who's, um, he's an academic, he's a scholar of medieval literature and a fantastic reader. And, you know, he has, my work is obviously very legible to him. So I think he knows, he can often see what I'm trying to avoid or validate when I've gotten there. So I'd say he's the first person I go to. How have you dealt with rejection? I don't know. I just carry on. I become more willful and there's nothing else you can really do as a writer. Rejection is just going to always be a part of our lives. And what is your favorite word? My favorite word is scribe. (laughs) 
Thank you so much for your time and for sharing so much about your novel. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the wonderful questions. It's been a total pleasure. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Azarine Vandervliet Alumi, author of Savage Tongues. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Sahar Mustafa, where we discussed her novel, The Beauty of Your Face, about a Palestinian-American woman who wrestles with her faith and identity after coming face-to-face with a shooter at the Muslim girls' school she heads. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of 300 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interview that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts in keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Joshua Henkin, Christine Mangan, and Kevin McElvoy. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.